This is the Business of Apps podcast, bringing you actionable insights from the leaders of the global app industry and the world's fastest growing apps. You can find more app news, data and analysis over at businessofapps.com. Welcome to the Business of Apps podcast. On this show, we invite app industry professionals to cover various topics. We promise to do our best to keep it both insightful, but brief. In this episode, we have Michael Bilotta, Head of Digital Goods and Services at Worldline. Michael, welcome to the BNSFS podcast. Thanks a lot, Art. Really looking forward to the conversation. Happy to be here. Great. Thank you for coming. Uh, so let me set the stage first. There is this joke in Silicon Valley that U.S. tech companies are great in software, Chinese ones are cool in hardware, and EU make great laws and regulations. Of course, there's always a kernel of truth in every joke, and I would say this one has a pretty big one. Big tech has been in free-fly mode since the inception of Google. There have been very few regulations for which you don't need even fingers on your both hands to count. But things change, and right now regulations are coming. Today, Michael will tell us about the EU Digital Markets Act, what it is, what are the implications for web developers and publishers. But first, Mike, let's begin with talking about you and your background in tech. Yeah, absolutely. So I've spent over a decade in tech, specifically in financial technology. And for almost all of that time, I've been in payments. And so I think that what that does is it gives me a a really excellent background that will kind of facilitate the conversation that we're having today because what I've always been looking at is the market from a merchant's perspective. So understanding how various regulations can impact the way in which they process their payments and how they should be acting towards their customers. Okay, uh, let's talk about Worldline. Give me a thumbnail sketch of what it is. Absolutely. So Worldline is a really interesting story. It's a success story out of France. So some of your listeners may be familiar with a company called Atos, which is an IT and tech company in France. And within that organization, Worldline was incubated up until 2013 when they started a project to spin off Worldline to become its own standalone public company. And since then, Worldline has been on a tear, growing exponentially through M&A and through organic growth. As part of that process, there are really two kind of distinctive branches or divisions of the Worldline organization. The first is what we call financial services, where we provide financial technology to banks and other financial institutions that allow them to perform things like card issuing. And then the other side, we have our merchant services division, which I'm part of, where we work directly with merchants to process their payments. And then more specifically to myself and the exposure that I have to the market, I work within our enterprise division where, like you mentioned, I run digital goods and services. And within the space of digital goods and services, really what we're focusing on is looking at kind of the the tier one organizations within the market, the big techs. And I think appropriately for this particular conversation, big techs are the ones that are really impacted by the Digital Markets Act and things like GDPR. 
So again, I think that really sets the stage nicely for us to kind of dive into the meat of the conversation today. Exactly. You have a first knowledge of uh, what these folks think about these changes. Uh, what are, how does this impact their business? Now, one of the most significant internet regulations of our time, uh, like I've said, is the, this EU Digital Markets Act. So please talk about the purpose of the act, its implications for in-app payments globally, and in general, what mobile app developers and publishers need to know to comply. The way that I look at the Digital Markets Act, we can call it DMA if we want to kind of acronymize it. Um, yep. It's basically a, a continuation of GDPR. So when GDPR went live in 2018, uh, the whole purpose of the act was to control the way that big tech companies and all tech companies use the data of their consumers. And like you mentioned at the beginning, EU is known for having these sort of strong regulations that control the way data flows. And it's very much an advocacy kind of perspective towards the consumer. So it's all about ensuring that consumers have, have control. So the Digital Markets Act is multifaceted. And essentially what it's looking to do is regulate the way that big techs can operate in the EU really from the perspective of ensuring that there are not these monopolies that are created because of the fact that these big tech companies are so expansive. So for example, if we look at Facebook, um, Facebook now Meta has all of these different assets that sit underneath it. So they have the Facebook platform. They also have WhatsApp. And one of the things that the DMA does is it kind of dislocates the data from those two. So it means that Facebook meta can't pull data from your WhatsApp messages and then try to use that to sell you something on Facebook marketplace. They can't do that. Um, now, more specifically from an app perspective, the way that the DMA, so there's eight kind of segments of big tech that the DMA oversees. And from an app perspective, it looks at the way in which payments can be facilitated through applications. So in the old world, the, the kind of pre-enlightened EU world, the way that these apps function through the Google Play Store and the Apple App Store were that Google and Apple controlled every aspect of the payment. So if you were an app within that environment and you wanted to accept payment for your service, let's say it was a subscription service, that payment would be taken by Apple or Google facilitated by the infrastructure that they had set up behind the scenes. And there was no visibility to the apps, to the merchants behind those apps in terms of how the payments were processed. And then on top of that, the app stores were taking a healthy commission near 30% for the service of having the store that allowed for that app to be brought to, to the consumers. And so the Digital Markets Act is basically saying, listen, you can continue to do that, but there also has to be this optionality. So the apps themselves need to be able to implement a third-party payment provider that will be able to facilitate those payments and do all of the things that payment companies are known to do with a commercial scheme that's between the app and the payments provider rather than with the app and Google and Apple. 
Got you. Um, by the way, this 30% cut from Apple, um, I've heard recently some somebody's recollection that the number was not born out of, uh, you know, thorough calculation. It was kind of a Steve Jobs idea. 30% will be enough. Let's go with the 30%. And has been the standard for uh, years and years, 15 years, because the mm -hmm. rules are changing right now. Apple has adopted a new uh, framework of payments, but this is precisely because the topic of our today's conversation, Digital Markets Act, mm -hmm. Apple has to follow the rule to continue to work in Europe. Right. Yeah, so um, let's talk about the response of web providers to these regulations so far. Like, uh, what do you hear? What, are, what is their response? Providers as in the payment providers. Yeah, so obviously from a payment provider perspective, it opens up an entirely new landscape for us to, to dive into. The main thing, the main disadvantage to the apps that was kind of proliferated by this quasi-monopoly that Google and Apple had on the market is that there was not a there was no choice for, for apps. And if there's one thing that payment service providers like Worldline can bring to the table, it's deep knowledge in payments and also the ability to increase the effectiveness of payments. So increase the performance of any individual payment and therefore help apps to generate more revenue from their business endeavors. And so the response that we've seen from, from the market and obviously Worldline is really leading the charge in this regard is developing SDKs that will allow for apps to be able to integrate their actual app development to a payment service provider and therefore allow for the infrastructure behind that payment service provider to take over the processing of those payments. And the biggest advantage that we see for merchants that kind of walk down this route is on one hand, yes, there is this kind of commercial component to what Apple and Google, the, the, the app stores have been levying to merchants. There's this 30% commission. There's also the unknown kind of cost of the payment behind the scenes. That's one aspect that gets clarified when you use a third-party payment provider for an app payment. But the biggest thing is really looking at all of the areas of enhancement that a payment provider can bring to the table. So if I look at it from a Worldline perspective, there's a couple of key areas where we're able to help to kind of enhance the effectiveness of the apps. The first would be from a payment performance standpoint. So when a payment goes through the traditional app store, it goes into kind of a black box that nobody is super familiar with, nor do we really understand exactly how that payment is being processed. But through a third party payment provider, we can do things like smart routing, where if a transaction fails, uh, initially, we can try and route it to another financial institution and see if we can get an acceptance. And by doing that, you can see an increase between 5 and 10%, for example, on the performance of the payment, which ends up being revenue that goes directly to the bottom line of, of the app. Another thing I think that's probably worth mentioning is just generally looking at the landscape of payments within the US, and I would say also within, within Canada, there aren't that many payment options. So it's kind of like we're going to pay with a credit card, a debit card, maybe we have PayPal, but there's there's kind of a, a limited number of, of options. Some are kind of brewing now below the surface, like FedNow, which is kind of an instant payment method that the, the US 
um, is trying to put into place. But if we look at the landscape of payments globally, there are many, many more options that are available, particularly in Europe. There are a lot of kind of real-time bank transfer products that are very popular within certain countries. And if those options aren't available to consumers, it's less and less likely that they're actually going to buy whatever it is that the app is offering, whether it's a subscription or a one-off purchase. So third-party payment providers have a portfolio of these payment options that they can also offer to the various apps and they can then offer to their customers and that will also help to increase their conversion. So really from those two perspectives, we see a massive opportunity for apps to increase their conversion and therefore prop up their bottom line by using a third-party payment provider for, for their payments in their apps. Got you. Uh, looking by the eyes of mobile developers and publishers, uh, I'm thinking, what about the cases when uh, I have to deal with refunds or fraudulent activities uh, up till this point, Apple and Google were taking care of all these things and that was kind of a big advantage. You don't have to worry about it. Right now, working with a third-party provider, uh, how does it work? Uh, can you give us some light on this? Absolutely. So it's it's part of the, the standard payments API. And I would say that you know for a majority of apps, they also will have a business that's predicated not only through an app, but also through a web browser. And so it's entirely likely that they already are connected to one or more payment service providers. And therefore they would typically be familiar with this process of refunds and disputes and all that. The good news is particularly at the enterprise level, which is you know kind of where my bread and butter is, um, there are a whole host of services that are provided by the payment service providers to handle these different processes. So as with Apple and Google, where the payment takes place and then it goes into a black box and then they will take care of any of the refunds, the chargebacks, the disputes, et cetera, it's really the exact same process. It's just that the intermediary is not the app stores, but it's the payment service provider, but that's taking care of it. But any reputable full service payment provider is going to have a suite of services that takes care of those refunds, those disputes. Um, of course, there's going to be an interaction between the payment service provider and the app, but it's just as seamless um, and it can be just as visible depending on, on which company is kind of facilitating that process. That's cool. That's good to know. Now, what is the potential for trialing alternative payment systems uh, with customers in markets like, I don't know, South Korea, India, and what are the implications for other jurisdictions like uh, US? That's a good question. So a market-based approach is, is definitely possible and, and probably it's the most realistic way of, of going about it. So you mentioned South Korea where there already is legislation in place to ensure that third-party payment providers can be used in apps. Obviously uh, in a couple of months time in, in early March, this is going to go live uh, in, in the EU. The U.S. is uh, is a bit different, so I think that the the traditional kind of um, thought process within the space right now is that, of course, the U.S. is is going to follow suit. I would say that 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 remains to be seen, uh, and then from that perspective, if you look at the markets that maybe aren't open yet, we have to try to understand what is the delta between the various app stores. And obviously, there's two that that are leading. Um, in that regard. Apple has definitely been a bit more guarded, I think, 
Um, whereas if you look at the steps that Google has taken, they've been quite app first, app friendly. So they famously kind of piloted the third party payment provider process with Spotify. So they worked together with Spotify and said, okay, we understand that you feel like on your own with one of your own partners, you can kind of optimize this process. Let's come up with a solution that works. And it turns out that that solution that they created with Spotify is the one that they're rolling out to the market, not only in Europe, but also globally. And so for Android users, apps can really start testing this globally now. They don't have to wait for the DMA. They don't have to wait for the US to move. For their Apple users, it's a little bit different, but we do see some progress. We can see that Apple is starting to move toward a paradigm that's not the same, but maybe in the same vein as what Google's trying to do in Europe. And you know, we just need to keep following the regulations and see how they open up the, the US. Yeah, I guess the, for Apple, it's the toughest job because they, they, they try to you know, kind of remain the status quo of the App Store, uh, trying to keep in place like as much as possible from the previous years, from the original idea, and kind of letting down the ground slowly but you now not no more than it's necessary to comply. This is kind of a strategy, but I can see from Apple. Yeah. And um, uh, it's a bit of a head scratcher for me, their uh, extra uh, fee for developers if they want to go to the third party platform, th third party um, payment processing system, app developers have to pay an extra fee per install. It's a bit of a <laughs> enigma for me. We'll see how it works once the act will be, um, in full force in March and uh, just uh, keep eye on this space and see what the news will be coming from Apple and the clarifications. Okay, um, I know uh, you might have been in the industry for a while and every guest on the show get this question from me when I know that he or she has a number of years under uh, their kind of a belt of you know being in the industry they definitely have to something to say about it. Um, looking at mobile tech today, what would you like to change about it the most? That's a good question. Well, I think that back in the day, so if we think about pre-smartphone era, we were all very excited to be able to start having the internet on the go and all of like literally have access to the aggregation of the world's knowledge in in the palm of our hands and when that started to be a possibility iphone was released in 2007 and ever since then it's just become more and more and more prevalent and with web 2 and web 3 we now see just an absolute explosion of availability of of content and I think that where we're going to now with the algorithms that power you know, TikTok and Instagram and things like that, they're so hyper addictive that there really is this aspect of kind of inescapability. And I think that if it's not watched very carefully, people can end up wasting inordinate amounts of time. So I'm, you know, I'm not a Luddite. I'm a big, big fan of technology. But I think that one of the things that's interesting now is just the ability to understand how to restrict time on platform to make sure that you can still have a productive life and get some of the education information and also leisure that technology has, has to offer. So I think we need to find a balance in the coming years to make sure that 
we don't go too far in one direction. Obviously, we can't get rid of technology, nor should we. Um, but also, we should remember that we're not, you know, brains floating inside of a jar. Like, we also need to be out in the world and talk to people and make eye contact and not just spend all of our time, you know, kind of flipping through, flipping through devices. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, keeping the balance is the toughest job in every area of our life. And uh, tech is, I guess, the brightest example. It actually reminds me this uh, quote from uh, late uh, Edward Wilson, a great biologist. He has this quote, uh, if I'm a bit of a giving a bit of a paraphrasing, we've built the Star Wars civilization. We have uh, um, paleolithic emotions, uh, medieval institutions and godlike technology. And we have to deal with all the components. Uh, we're really not up to the task of dealing with so much complexity. And it's hard. And we see a lot of uh, externalities because of this. So, um, yeah, like you're, you're saying, um, without technology, we'll be facing even greater problems, given how many of folks running around this planet, how many needs they have, uh, energy, resources. So technology is the tool to handle with all these problems but when it's get out of hand when there is no regulations when there is no uh guard rails we are in trouble so yeah we'll see how it's gonna play out totally okay uh we're finishing up the first part of the show and transitioning to the second one which is a quick one and uh, whenever i have a guest who hasn't been on the show I'm using this chance to ask a few quick questions for the benefit of our listeners so they know my guests a little bit better. Here we go. So what smartphone do you have now? Um, have you been switching between two giants, iOS and Android, or staying on one side all the time? So I got my first iPhone in 2010, I think, and I've been an iPhone guy ever since. I, for, for the purposes of full disclosure, I had a Android phone for a year in 2014, I think. But ever since then, I've been double fisting iPhones. So actually, I have two iPhones. <laughs> this is great. Okay, uh, let's jump back in time before the iPhone. Uh, what was your first mobile phone? The one you could put in your pocket? Yep, I remember it well. So I'm, I'm 34 and I got my first phone, mobile phone in ninth grade and for a while, the name of this phone was the password for my computer, which is why I remember it. And it was the Motorola T720, in my opinion, one of the best flip phones of all time. Oh boy, flip phones. Um, there's got to be a, a, a exhibition in a museum somewhere uh, for the, you know, the evolution of the phone uh, from the one you could put in your table, in your pocket. And uh, who knows, in a few years, you may just have uh, caring in your ear. Um, now, imagine for whatever reason, you've left your iPhone at home and you're out. Uh, what's the, what is the most missing feature for you at that point? Business day, business hours, it's gonna be email, Teams, things like that. If we take that out of the equation, I would say that, so the first thing that comes to mind would probably be GPS but most cars now have that available. So the biggest thing for me would be something more old school, I think, but just Google. So I don't have a personal presence on like the cool hip, uh, probably shouldn't even say hip, but uh, yeah, like I don't have a TikTok account. I don't have Instagram. 
so for me, it would just be having any information that I want at the tip of my fingers. And I think I mentioned before, I got the iPhone 4 in 2010. And ever since then, I was just absolutely enthralled with the ability to, whenever I had a question, look it up, look it up, look it up. So it would have to be that. Yeah, got you. All right. Um, nothing is perfect. Uh, neither your uh, phone, their smartphone, like every year we can see this trend. And uh, if you think about anything for your iPhone right now, which you believe would be great if that feature hardware software would be there, but it's not there yet. Um, not necessarily something we can hear like I know some trendy stuff, but you can try to think of something that it's specifically lacking for you. What would be that feature? From a hardware perspective, this is just aesthetics, but uh, on the iPhone, I don't like the little um, notch at the top or the little round. I don't know. It's not really a notch anymore on the newer ones. It's a little hole. Yeah, I don't love that. And then I have a Pro Max and the the cameras on the back really pop out. And I don't use a case because I'm a purist. Uh, and also I like to take risks. And I don't like that either because it doesn't sit flush on the on the on there. From a software perspective, ah, that's hard. Um, it does everything that I need it to do. I mean, you can probably tell I'm kind of a, a low grade user of, of the iPhone. I don't use all the fancy apps. I don't play games on the phone really. It's, it's more like watching podcasts um, and it does that perfectly. Uh, I like the kind of multitasking feature with YouTube or Spotify. If you're watching a podcast, you can kind of make a smaller screen and then go about doing something else. So. Yeah, for me, it, it, it does everything that it needs to do. I think just more generally, um, I think that it's a really difficult task to try to solve the attention problem. I think that, you know, there's one way of doing it, which is what I do, which is just don't get involved. But if I look at the younger generation, that's not really possible. And so it's, it's a really diff difficult balancing act to try to understand what is the optimal amount of time to, to use the phone and what do we do about it? What responsibility do the hardware and software providers have? Because I don't necessarily like the idea of saying that, you know, every phone comes with uh, programming that only allows two hours every day. I don't, I don't think that's a good idea either. People should have the freedom to do what they want. So that's a tough question. And I don't know if I have the answer. And I don't think I don't have the answer either. Uh, I think it's extremely hard for younger folks, uh, basically anybody under the age of 25, when you more or less have your prefrontal cortex formed and you can make reasonable decisions and be mindful mm -hmm. and control yourself uh, as much as you can. So having something in your pocket that is so capable, it was the original idea to make it capable more and more. Now kind of a, wouldn't be great if the pendulum kind of swing back a little bit, there's got to be some uh, balance in between nobody knows where exactly that point but yeah I definitely hear what you're saying okay before I let you go Michael uh, where can people get in touch with you and get more information about what you do absolutely well from a worldline perspective of course you can visit us worldline.com of course we're on LinkedIn as well and that is where I've been talking about my lack of social media presence so if you want to find me uh, I'm also on on LinkedIn under my name and yeah it would be really cool if anyone that's listening wants to reach out and have a chat, I'd be happy to do that. So that'd be awesome. Great. Michael, thank you. Thank you so much for spending time with us and being on the podcast. Bye-bye. Thanks, Art. Yeah, I'd love to do it again sometime. Great. Absolutely. 
And that was Michael Bilotta, head of digital goods and services at Worldline. To listen to more episodes, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. Just search for Business of Apps, and you will find us easily. Remember, we release episodes on Mondays. So subscribe, and you will be able to get new episodes on your smartphone, tablet, or computer as soon as we release them. And please don't forget to leave us a review or comment on iTunes. It is highly appreciated. And all episodes will also be available on businessofapps.com. Thank you for listening. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Business of Apps podcast. For more, head on over to businessofapps.com.